0: Go ahead and make your way to the book of James. We're going to be spending the spring and the summer looking at the book of James. So if you're not familiar, grab your Bible, open it to the middle, start going right. And just keep turning right. And when you think you've gone too far, keep turning. When you see Hebrews, slow down. Because if you turn too fast, you'll pass James. It's a short letter right after Hebrews, but it's a letter that is packed like a lot of gospel-rich power. James was the brother of Christ and became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and under immense persecution in Jerusalem, the believers had to scatter. James, being a wise and tender pastor, writes this letter, and honestly, I think it's a sermon. I think it's a a sermon in a letter. He, He writes this sermon, he writes this letter to a particular people he has in mind, but he writes it in a broad way so that it can be applied by God's people where it was liable. We actually call this a general letter because it's written to a particular people but in a broader way And in, in God's kindness and providence and inspiring James to write this letter to the church. God had you and I in his peripheral vision as well. So we get to spend our time looking at this great letter and, and, and talking about what wisdom looks like in life in a fallen world. What is wisdom For those of us as followers of Christ who live a resurrected life. And what we've seen so far, I don't want to take too much time looking back at what we've seen, but because it's a sermon and because it's a letter, everything that he's saying right now is connected to what he said just before it. And so what we've seen just in the couple of weeks that we've been looking at this letter is that James calls God's people to see the present trials, the the reality of the trials that they face through the eternal realities of God's character and God's purposes. He calls us to see our present trials through the reality of God's eternal purposes that we might be able to count the reality of these trials as fuel for our joy because we know they're not meaningless, they're, they're not purposeless. Rather, we know because what we know to be true about who God is and what his purpose for his people is, we know that they're not meaningless and that God is refining the genuineness of our faith in them and that he's cultivating in our hearts steadfastness. That as we allow, James says, steadfastness to have its full effect, what we want more than anything begins to take place and we're further conformed to the image of Christ brought to greater and greater maturity. But as we saw last week, James being a wise and and tender pastor and being a fallen man himself knows all too well that there are circumstances in life that come upon us and seem to choke the, the hope out of our hearts where it feels like in the midst of those circumstances and trials, it's next to impossible for us to see their reality through the lens of God's eternal purposes. We can't seem to have this kind of understanding that allows us to consider the reality of the trial a cause for joy because we can't begin to see and grasp and hold tight to how the trial is refining the genuineness of our faith. James knows this, which is why he says in in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks the ability to see the reality of the present trial through the eternal lens of God's character and purposes, he knows that. If any of you lacks that ability, lacks that wisdom, James says, look, let him ask. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and and it will be given to him. James, again, takes God's people back, not to so much what they see around them, but what they know to be true about God. James takes us back to what we know to be true about God most specifically and clearly seen through the gospel. This is a gospel-formed wisdom that James is calling God's people to. We know God's generosity. We know the depth of his generosity in no greater place than by him not withholding his own son, but giving his own son to die in our place for our sins that we might, by his grace, place our faith in him and be forgiven and redeemed and become his own child. He knows this, and he knows we know this. So knowing what we know about God, he says if you lack the wisdom you need from him to consider this present trial as a source of joy, knowing that it's not purposeless in the hands of God, just ask him, ask him for the wisdom. And that's the greatest temptation of God's people in the hearts of God's people in the midst of these present trials and circumstances is that we would hitch our hope and our confidence to something to find our hearts in a place of being double-souled. Remember that last week, if you were with us, we saw that's what that double-minded word really means. Now, James, being a good pastor, laying out this call and building this thesis, he's going to give an illustration. He's gonna illustrate what wisdom from God in a gospel-formed way not be able to remain steadfast underneath it. We wouldn't allow steadfastness to have its effect knowing that in that trial, God is refining the genuineness of our faith. James is gonna give us an illustration of what it looks like when double-mindedness lays its traps for the hearts of God's people and the wisdom of God helps God's people avoid falling prey to those traps. James is going to take what he has said and now apply it to a particular circumstance. A trial in the lives of the people he's writing to that's common to the lives that we live right now, and a trial that requires us to have this wisdom from God. James is going to illustrate what he's been saying by looking at our hearts in relation to our resources. We can all relate to that. Verse 9, look at what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray and then we'll begin to see what God has for us in this pastor's words. Oh, I thank you again that we're here. It's no small privilege indeed. God, help us this morning. It will take the work of your Holy Spirit together with the work of your living and active word to help us this morning for the first time or the first time in a long time to see the glorious reality of what it means to be hidden in your son Jesus, exalted in your son Jesus, brought low by your son Jesus. Lord, we need the wisdom that comes from you that's shaped by our understanding of who you are for us through him, through his life, that brings us to the place where in the midst of trials like this, we can remain steadfast, confident that you're working to refine the genuineness of our faith and bring us to a place of maturity. That's what we want, for that to happen this morning it needs to be a miracle of the work of your spirit, and we ask you for that this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I've got to acknowledge something out, out the gate. My personal skewed because of the last six days of my life. I spent the last six days in another part of the world with people who have given their lives, men, women, and children, to see the gospel made known amongst some of the darkest, some of the most dangerous, some of the poorest parts on the face of the earth. In particular, I had the opportunity, and it wasn't part of the plan, but it was part of what God was doing, to spend Thursday through yesterday morning with a a pastor and his family who fled their country years ago and found themselves in the place where where I was and and have opened up their lives and opened up their homes to bring men and women and their families from the country of, of his origin to where they are now for a week to two weeks at a time, opening up the entirety of their home and spending 12 to 14 hours a day with each of them, discipling them in the gospel, giving them the Bible in their own language, bringing them back on a, on a regular interval that they might be able to be, to be faithful and accurate and tender shepherds of the gospel back in this part of the world that we can't get into. He was, we were talking about what all goes into that and he was saying that that he and his family have have made over 5,000 plus meals just in the last year for these people they bring into their home and just open up their world to I mean, it was a generosity and a, and a hospitality that I, I just couldn't even get my head around. But we did something else that I'm still having to process. And the flight home was helpful for me as we were going through this. But we went to a, a refugee resettlement area. And this was a particular resettlement area that you can't get into without UN credentials. But we went up to it and, and we were just looking at it. And he was showing me what was going on and explaining the, the crisis that, that this country and the rest of the world are facing with this refugee migration. And, and this place was... One of the most, uh, I don't even know if I have a word, word for it in, in my, my mind, one, one of the most um, desperate places I've ever seen. Like, if you could imagine coming from a place in life where you had nothing and you found yourself in a place in life where you have less than nothing. If that's even possible, that's the situation these people were in. They were literally stacked on top of each other in containers, 75 to 90 plus people per container, four containers high. No home, no country, no money, no confidence they're going to be able to move any further in their journey. Literally in a container. And as we were looking at this and, and talking to people who work with the refugees and, and having a chance to meet a couple of the believers who, who were in the midst of those, those camps and, and recognize what people were going through and, and recognize the situations that they were in, I was thinking on the way home, the, the verses that God had for us this morning, and I saw them for, for the first time as a, a tremendous gift of grace from God to me. I mean, God knew where I would be this week, knew what verses we were going to be looking at this morning knew the circumstances and the reality behind the writing that James gives us here. And, and if we're careful, and if we'll allow God to do what only God can do, and we allow his Holy Spirit to work this morning, these verses are a gift of God's grace to us because they allow us to actually peer into what's going on underneath the surface and what's going on in our hearts as we talk about things like poverty and prosperity this morning, we're going to do something that's a little bit different as we get into the verses. We're we're going to take a really slow approach to the verses. And I've been on an airplane for nearly 24 hours too, so all my language is all fixed in this this particular way. But we're going to start at 50,000 feet, and we're going to come down to 30,000 feet, and then we're going to come down to 10,000 feet. It's like an epic introduction to the verses. Because there are a couple concepts that I think we've got to be honest about We've got to talk about, we've got to put out before us if we're gonna be responsible to hear what James is actually saying. There's two big things that I think we have to understand as we come to these verses, And, and here's the first one. James, being a very wise and very tender pastor, he reminds God's people then and he reminds us now that both poverty and prosperity present difficulties and trials for the hearts of God's people. Both poverty and prosperity present difficulties and trials for the faith, the genuineness of the faith of God's people, what's going on in their hearts. Now, we don't need to take any time convincing one another that poverty is a trial. I don't think that's something that we need to argue about this morning. All of us would consider what we would deem to be poverty as a significant difficulty, not only in the, the direct living out of life, but a trial in the heart and how we respond to it. On the other hand, I'm not sure that many of us would readily consider the reality of prosperity to be a trial, to present difficulty. The dangerous reality of it is prosperity might present a greater danger and temptation to the hearts of God's people than even poverty. Proverbs chapter 30 Says two things I ask of you: De- deny them to me not before I die. You hear that? Two things. Please don't deny them to me. One: remove far from me falsehood and lying. Two: give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful, lest I be full and deny you and say, "Who is the Lord?" It was a danger. In the heart of God's people, when, when prosperity comes upon their home, lest I, I have more than I need and all of a sudden forget where it actually came from. But he also said, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You're probably more familiar with Jesus' teaching regarding the subject, Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. There's a double-minded, double-souled trap that's laid out for the hearts of God's people when it comes to prosperity and poverty, their heart and their resources. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And right before he said that, he said what you're probably more familiar with in Matthew 6, 22, where your treasure is. That which your heart, where your treasure is, there, there your heart will be also. Your heart will be attached to whatever it is you give the most value to. Now, if there was anyone in the history of the church that understood the reality that both poverty and prosperity present traps for the heart of God's people, are one of these various trials. That James is talking about. If there's any part of church, the church history that has ever been clued into this and kept it in front of God's people, it was the Puritans. The Puritans were masters at this across the board. And in fact, there, there was one Puritan, John Flavel, who, who wrote what I call a booklet, because when you go to Google and get it because it's free, it's like 70-something pages, but it was probably one sermon back then. But I call it a booklet, and it's called Keeping the Heart, and in the beginning of that sermon, that booklet, I don't know what you want to call it, Flavel said, there's no time or condition of life in which we as followers of Christ may be excused from the work of keeping our heart, watching certain seasons and critical hours that come upon you where it requires of you more than just a common keeping and acknowledging times of doubt and spiritual darkness, when suffering for our faith is laid upon us, Prosperity. Keeping the heart in times of prosperity, there is required of God's people an an uncharacteristic need to be aware of what's going on. Because like poverty, in times of prosperity, there are traps laid for the hearts of God's people, and we need to be aware of what's going on. So James reminds God's people that both poverty and prosperity serve as trials that God can use to refine the genuineness of our faith. And both of them require us to see the reality of those trials through the eternal purposes of who God is and what he's doing. That's wisdom. And so if you were with us last week, you might remember when we looked at this wisdom and what we understood this wisdom to be, we, we settled on this definition that this wisdom was the ability to see things as they really are to arrive at true definitions and to cease to live by what appears to be true and to live instead by what is actually the truth of the matter as God sees it. And so the danger for God's people, the the trap that is laid in wait to ensnare the hearts of God's people, this thing that would tempt us towards a double-souled reality and response in the midst of these trials is simply this. Our heart can begin to replace the eternal for the temporal. That which we know to be eternally true about who God is and who we are in light of what he has said, what we know to be eternally true will be replaced in our heart by what we see around us, the the temporal, the circumstance, the situation that we're in, what is said about us in this present age. The temptation is that for those of us as God's people who have received so generously from God the single most transformative possession imaginable, the gospel, The grace of God, that we would lose our sense of what's truly important and the eternal reality would be replaced by the temporal. One writer summed it up better than I did. We probably could have read this and gone on. He said, simply put, prosperity and poverty together. Refine our faith in the sense that they reveal how much our love for the Lord and our obedience to him is dependent on what we possess. Did you hear that? If we're bitter because we lack, or if we rejoice only because we abound, our faith is seen to be of very low quality. Remember, the trial re- refines the genuineness of our faith. And he's saying that when our joy and when our confidence and our obedience is dependent on what we possess, poverty and prosperity, they present snares, they're trials, in the hearts of God's people. But there's something else we need to say. That's 50,000 feet. We've got to come down to 30,000 feet now. 30,000 feet is simply this. The Bible does not condemn wealth per se or Christians for being wealthy. We're gonna talk about prosperity and, and poverty and then James, like a good pastor, he's, going to, he's just laying this out right now. Chapter two, he's gonna come back around and get very specific. So we're not done with this by any stretch of the imagination. But if we're gonna talk about prosperity and we're gonna talk about poverty, we need to be honest that in the, the biblical tenor of the story of the entire Bible, the Bible does not, per se, condemn wealth or Christians for being wealthy. In fact, go back and look at Abraham and David and Solomon and, and, in fact, Boaz. It was his prosperity that allowed him to be able to redeem Ruth in the first place. Phoebe, Phoebe, Lydia, Aquila, Priscilla, all of them, even in the New Testament, used by God in mighty ways to support the advance of the gospel and the work of the gospel. The Bible does not condemn wealth or Christians for being wealthy per se. Generally, when the Bible talks about wealth, though, it does come with a strong warning of the dangers that have been laid in the hearts of God's people when it comes to prosperity. But it doesn't condemn it just in itself. Secondly, with this, though, and kind of related, the Bible does not draw a a line anywhere, like you're not going to be able to find a a chapter or a verse anywhere in the Bible that says, when you cross this line, you go from being poor to being rich. You're not going to find it. There's no line that God has laid in the sand that we can go to and say, okay, as long as I stay on this side, when I read things like James 1, 9 through 11, I find myself in the lowly position. But if I were to do something that got me over on this side of the line, now all of a sudden I'm wealthy. The reality of it is, talking about prosperity and talking about poverty, it really is circumstantial and it really is kind of a spectrum. And ultimately, and we're going to get here in a second, when it comes to how we see ourselves and and what James is writing here, and we see ourselves sitting as we come to these verses, you've got to remember though, on global standards, every single person in this room is wealthy. People I spent my time with this past week, and again, there's no guilt in this at all. God has determined before the foundations of the earth, the times and the places where his people will be. There's no guilt at all in being where we are right here and right now. But the people that, that we were trying to reach and those that I was with are working amongst, the best of them, best of them, live on average of $500 a year. A global perspective, you and I sitting in here this morning really don't understand what the lowliest state is. From a global perspective, poverty is really not something that you and I can truly understand. You and I might feel bad when we compare our position in life to someone else in the city maybe. When we go from one neighborhood to another, we might all of a sudden think we're in the lowly position but the reality of it is, when it comes to the global standard, there isn't a person that will hear me this morning that truly understands what the lowly estate is. Which is why we kind of have to get underneath the heart of the matter and talking about prosperity and poverty and what the gospel says about how, how the wisdom of God shapes our responses to both. And that's simply this. Here it is, underneath it. It's not wrong to possess wealth. It is deadly to be possessed by it, okay? It's not wrong to possess wealth. It is deadly to be possessed by it, which is why when we try to listen to James and, and we then naturally, you're gonna go, am I in the lowly estate or am I in the wealthiest state when he's talking about to the lowly brother or the wealthy brother? You're gonna try to figure out where you are. Let me suggest this to us. We have to look at it in a little different view because from a global perspective, we're all wealthy, Which is why I like what one writer was saying about this. He begins to say, if we're gonna try to find our place in this story, it's best to think about where we are from a materialistic perspective. I mean, listen to what he said. He said, materialism is less about the money you possess and more about the attitude you have toward what you do or do not own. Okay? The materialist in the Bible is not the man who has a lot of money, but the man whose life and ambitions and priorities are indistinguishable from his money, however much or little he has. This is where we're going to find ourselves in this story. Some of the most materialistic people you will ever know are comparatively quite poor. In other words, he who possesses little but desires much is more the focus of the Bible's warnings than is the person who possesses much but desires little. So don't ever think you're immune from the temptation based on the amount in your bank account. It's the attitude of your heart that puts you at great risk. That's where we're going this morning. You're naturally going to hear these verses and try to figure out which side of the line you're on. It's not about that. Figuring out where we are in this as James is speaking is much more to the attitude of our heart. Is the temporary displacing the eternal? We will need wisdom from the Lord. To avoid these traps that are laid out for the hearts of God's people, that we don't find ourselves double sold. And the good news is the same gospel affects both the lowly and the wealthy. And James is going to show us how that same wisdom from God gives us a gospel-formed way of seeing where we are, lowly and wealthy, and how we remain steadfast under it. Let's look at verse 9, now 10,000 feet. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So here's the thing, the lowly brother, the, 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 the poor, there's gonna be a temptation for them. Again, the underlying temptation is for the eternal realities, what we know to be true about who God is and who we are because of his mercy and grace to be displaced out of our heart by the temporal by the present realities around us, and even by what the world around us is saying about us and the situation we find ourselves in. I mean, better than me trying to explain it, the psalmist, I think, explains it way better than I ever could. Psalm 73, the psalmist says this, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had, had nearly slipped. Right? He's, he's near stumbling, he's near falling. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. to so a trap laid out in front of him. Envy is beginning to consume the way that he's understanding the world around him. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. These are the ones that he's looking around at. He's beginning to grow envious of. He describes them. He says, they're always at ease. They increase in riches. They, they all in. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long I've been stricken and rebuked. Every morning he's looking around at at the wicked and a trap has been laid before him because what he knows to be eternally true by the God he loves and who he is in relation to him is being displaced by the temporal and he's looking around at the prosperity of the world around him and he's growing envious of it. In vain have I done what God's called me to do. And he said, I nearly stumbled. I nearly displaced what I knew to be true about who God was from what I saw around me and I nearly stumbled into the life of the wicked parody that I see in his life. That's the trap laid out. I mean, the world that we live in, in every single way possible, does nothing but pump into our minds and into our hearts that to be lowly of a state is to be less than. That life is about moving up Life is about having more. Life is about going somewhere. Media in in every way. Advertising, and even the stories they give us. The people that we now want to follow. They're all stories of prosperity saying over and over again, this is who you should want to be. This is what you should want to have. To be lowly is to be less than. And this trap is laid out. For the eternal reality of what we know to be true about who we are by the grace of God to be replaced by the temporary of what we see around us and what the world around us says. But James, illustrating what he is trying to, to communicate, says that with God's wisdom, ask him and he gives it with his wisdom to see through the present picture to the larger eternal realities, the gospel, the wisdom of God begins to form our understanding. We can see The eternal. We can see the circumstance now in light of who he is and who he's been for us and we can see that by his grace, we as his people, even when the world looks at us and sees us in the most lowly of estates, we can know with confidence and with security that we possess the greatest treasure, that we have a possession from God that is greater than anything the most wealthy on the earth could ever possess materially. Worldly standards and worldly opinion may actually say that we're indeed quite poor but the wisdom that comes from God and the formation that comes to our heart from the gospel reminds us that in the sight of God we are indeed exceedingly rich when every television show and every advertising outlet and everything tries to show us people that we want to be that we should be like this person and this is what we should be after God says you've already made it you've already made it This is what Peter was reminding the church of in his letters, according to God's great mercy, he has caused you to be born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. I mean, God, when you were dead in your sin and trespasses, by his mercy caused you to be born again by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from the grave in your place, and he called you to be born again to an inheritance that it's imperishable, it's undefiled, that he is keeping in heaven for you. James is, is trying to show God's people in the midst of lowly estate in poverty what it looks like when we most clearly seen even in the gospel, reshapes our sense of self and the way we view the world. So that which is most eternally true, you're actually exalted. Lowliest of estates, the wisdom that comes from God, this gospel form view of who you are in the world that we live and the circumstance you're in says that in, in fact, in what is most true, you have every reason to be confident and boast in the fact that you are highly exalted. So James is encouraging God's people, don't, don't exchange the temporary. Don't allow to, to grow in your heart this desire to possess more. Don't allow your heart to fall into the double-souled trap Don't allow the eternal to be displaced by the temporary. Look at what God says to be true about who you are and where you are. But he has words for the rich brother too. We got to keep going. He has words for the wealthy brother as well, which again, just to be fair, we're talking about all of us here. Wisdom that comes from God, this gospel formed worldview will impact how we, even in our prosperous estate, we'll be able to remain steadfast under the trials that are laid in front of us, the temptations of double-souled danger that exist for the wealthy. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." See, the temptation that's laid out in the hearts of God's people in the times of prosperity, the the danger of double-souledness that exists for God's people in times of prosperity is simply this. We will take our heart and we will tie it up to something that perishes. And the problem is when that thing perishes, we'll perish right along with it. The temptation that, that exists for God's people is that we will begin to trust, rely upon but our confidence in our wealth. To use the Bible's language, we will make our wealth the trap that is laid, that wants to snare the hearts of God's people in times of prosperity. It causes us to, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, more specifically, to think about ourselves the way the world tells us we should think about ourselves. Sam Alberry, he's a British pastor. He, he, He says it better than I can. I wish I had his accent. You'd believe me more if I had his accent. Culture, the world we live in, tends to think of the wealthy as those who have made it and can now revel in their success. To be wealthy is to have won the game, succeeded at life, and fulfilled what it's all about. Wealthy people are to be admired and envied. Their lives and their homes are splashed across magazines and featured in articles so that the rest of us know what we're missing out on. We love even a momentary glimpse into what life is like for the wealthy. Everyone else perceives the wealthy as being problem-free. After all, they're rich. What more could they possibly want or what could happen? The temptation that lays in the heart of God's people in times of prosperity is to actually think of ourselves the way the world thinks about us. But the problem is wealth is deceitful. James reminds us that everything we own will one day wither and pass away like the flowers in the field. And if we hitch our heart to that which perishes, we will perish right along with it. But James isn't making this stuff up. James is drawing on the rich teaching of God's word, even from the Bible that he would have had in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40, you may be familiar with this. Isaiah says that all flesh is grass All of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. The psalmist said in Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The the wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place is remembered no more. Or more specifically, Psalm 49. Be not afraid when a rich man or when a man becomes rich when the glory of his house increases for when he dies he will carry nothing away with him his glory will not go down after him Now we take that now and we say you can't take it with you but the reality of it is you really just can't take it very far at all I mean from our point of view when the eternal becomes displaced by the temporary We fall prey to the temptation to believe that our prosperity is our security. We think it offers us stability, but the reality of it is our prosperity is perishable because it's all prey. It all falls at the mercy of circumstances. All of us who worship our wealth will perish with our God. James is speaking very specifically here about Financial lowly estate, but if we had time, we could even step away to the other things that our heart ties itself to—the other things we believe we have in prosperity or have in wealthy estate. Some of us hitch our hearts to our looks; it's perishing too. No pillar surgery can fix that. I'm sorry. Our physical prowess—it's perishing. The sharpness of our intellect—it's. It, it's perishing so James wise tender pastor reminds God's people that the wisdom that comes from a gospel-formed view of the world it frees even the wealthy of a state to boast but this time their boasting is not in what they've accumulated It's not in the status that they have in the life that they live. The world looks at them and puts them on a pedestal and allows them to boast in what they own and the status that they're in. But James says the wisdom that comes from God that's formed from a view of the gospel and what that means for who we are and who God is, it frees the wealthy to boast as well, but not in what they've accumulated. It frees us to boast, to live with extreme confidence in our humiliation, It's the wisdom that comes from God. It's formed by our understanding of the gospel that reminds us that in the shadow of the cross, regardless of our social or economic status, in our sin, all of us are equal. Every distinction that's made because of what we possess, our wealth, our influence, our power, ultimately at the the foot of the cross, it's meaningless. In The presence of Christ it's insignificant. The wisdom from God that that helps the prosperous to remain steadfast when the traps are laid before them to exchange their understanding of who God is and how he's blessed them for who they are and what they think they've done for themselves. The wisdom that helps them avoid that trap and remain steadfast in the midst of the trial is a wisdom that reminds them by the grace of God that they had to acknowledge what really mattered. What's most true, what's most eternally significant they came to a point to realize that in that they were utterly bankrupt. That apart from the grace of God and the the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, just like the lowly of a state, they were dead in their sin. Regardless of how much they owned, how big their portfolio was, how many houses they had, and what the world said about them, they needed to receive something from God that they could not provide for themselves. Forgiveness could not be bought Redemption could not be bought. Being brought into the family of God as a son or daughter of God could not be bought. They had to own the utter poverty and their spiritual bankruptness, if that's even a word, and have by the mercy and grace of God received those things. You see, it's the wisdom of God that comes to the lowly and to the prosperous, to those in poverty and those in prosperity. It's a gospel-formed wisdom that allows them to remain steadfast as they realize that apart from the mercy and grace of God, who they are and what they have in Christ, they could have never achieved. And so those who the world looks at and sees as less than and lowly have all the reason to know that in what matters most, we can live in full confidence and boast in our exaltation. But at the same time, it reminds those who the world looks at and says have everything, Have all the reason to be the the envy of everyone else that that same gospel that frees the lowly to boast allows you to live with humility and remain steadfast and avoid the snare that's laid for your heart to displace the eternal realities of what you know to be true about yourself and who God is for the temporal realities of believing that you made it all happen. It's the work of the gospel in the heart of man. As the wisdom of God comes to the prosperous and the poor. So the gospel forms the view of the way we understand our world, understand who we are, understand the circumstances that we're in. It does what nothing else can do. It produces a humble confidence in the hearts of men. And this humble confidence is the outworking of nothing but the wisdom of God and the work of the gospel. This humble confidence allows us both, present together, to recognize that apart from the grace of God, apart from the mercy of of God. The lowly, the rich, are both dead in their sin. Nothing that we could do to change that. I wish we had time to talk about the inherent sickness and perversion of a theology that's spreading across the world of prosperity that It tries to tell those who are followers of Christ the point of this gospel is that you can have everything you could ever want right now. It's touching on something that's true and real and James is trying to help us to understand there's a magnetism to wealth and, and riches that is powerful and it's insistent. And all of us as followers of Christ constantly need wisdom that comes from God to see through the facade, to see through it. And to see ourselves for who we are, and to see God for who He truly is, and to see where we are in this life—in what's most true—that those who find themselves in a lowly estate with full confidence and joy can boast in their exaltation in Christ, and those of us who find ourselves in a prosperous estate realize we have no reason to boast in ourselves. The humbling work of the gospel, and that God rescued us even from ourselves. This morning, we, we had the privilege of responding to, to God's word as we, as we do each and every week. But as we do, I want, I want to ask you a couple questions and I want to allow you in a moment that we have to reflect on these questions as we prepare to respond to God's word. And I think they're getting after the heart of what James is, what James is saying to God's people and, and simply this, how deeply are you affected by the reality of your identity in Christ? And God's gonna give us a moment here as we reflect to be honest with ourselves, to to take stock of what's going on in our own heart. How deeply are you affected by the reality of your identity in Christ? And at the same time, how deeply are you affected by your economic status? How, How deeply are you affected by the reality of who you are in Christ? And at the same time, how deeply are you affected by the reality of your economic status? And here's the third Which of these two realities has the greatest influence on how you think about yourself and your world and how you live the life you live? Gives us a chance to take stock of what's really going on. The questions are a gift of God's grace. The words of Pastor James are a gift of God's grace because he gives us an opportunity to examine what's really going on in our heart that we not fall prey to the temptations and snares that are laid in front of us in in, in prosperity and in poverty. Which of the two realities, your economic standing in this world or your identity in Christ, who you are, what is most true about you because of the gospel, which one has the greatest influence on how you think and, and how you live? I mean, do you you celebrate the reality of your exaltation when the Apostle Paul says that you have died? And when you have died, you have died to this world. You've died to its values. You've died to people's opinions of you based on your estate. You've died to everything with it. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do Do you boast, live with confidence in your exaltation Which one has the most significant impact on you? You're gonna have a moment to reflect, to pray, to deal with God, let God deal with you. And then we're gonna be able to respond to God's word this morning. You're gonna have a chance to respond by receiving communion. And for those of you who are the followers of Christ, when you come forward, you are remembering and you are celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus in your place for your sins. You take the bread and remember his body. You dip it in that juice and you remember his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. What you're celebrating is the same gospel, the same grace and mercy of God through Jesus that allows those in the lowliest state to boast in the exaltation that is theirs, that is more true about them than anything else that they could ever know. And it's the same gospel that allows us to return to a place of humility, remembering that, that that cross, that suffering, it was necessary. You had nothing. How much, how much prosperity, how much wealth you have, there was nothing that you had that could have ever bought or earned the forgiveness that is yours through Christ. That was necessary. This morning, wherever your heart is with those questions, whatever's going on underneath you this morning as a follower of Christ, as you come forward and receive communion, allow it to, to bring you to a place of confidence in your exaltation. Allow it to bring you to a necessary place of humility, remembering what was necessary for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we're, we're thrilled that you're here. We're glad that you're here you've got questions about what we have said and more questions about who Jesus is, more questions about what we're, we're doing here, I, I want to I encourage you this. Talk to the person who invited you. Grab one of us you, you've seen up here. We're, we're happy to talk to you and, and help you and want to help you more. But as we stand and, and we're called forward to respond to communion this morning, to respond to God's word, I want to encourage you to just stay where you are. This morning, our encouragement to you is to deal with God. Let him deal with you. In fact, there are a couple of prayers that are on that worship guide that you can look at during communion and just think through and and work through it. I I promise you, no one's looking around. No one's trying to figure out who's not walking forward, who is walking forward. In fact, for for some who are followers of Christ, they're going to stay where they are for a little while. God's going to be working in their hearts. But in just a moment, I'm going to pray. Then we'll all stand. And for those who are followers of Christ, we have a chance to come forward this morning, respond to God's word, remembering the same gospel that reminds us of our exaltation, that brings us back to a place of proper humility, that works in us a humble confidence that allows us, by the grace of God, to remain steadfast. That steadfastness might have its full effect and bring us to a place of maturity. Let me pray for us and we'll respond. Father, thank you. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for the work of your Son. Thank you that you held nothing back for us. Thank you for your generosity that did not withhold even your only son. That you're generous, more generous than we could ever imagine. This morning we ask that in your generosity and mercy by your Holy Spirit, you would pour out on us an awareness of what is going on in our hearts. or that we might see for the first time or the first time in a long time our need for you to bring us to a place of, of humiliation and, and humbling, recognizing in our sin our poverty, our spiritual bankruptness, and our, and our need for you that we could cast ourselves and our, our confidence upon you and, and for others for the first time or the first time in a long time. The world has told us that we're less than, but in you we see ourselves. We, we want to be a time where for the first time or first time in a long time. We can boast. We can boast in our identity in you and our exaltation that our life is hidden in you and we're seated in your right hand. We ask by your spirit for your glory in the name of your son and for our joy you would do that this morning. Amen.